Thank you so much for that introduction. And I actually changed the word elderly to older adults because in this era, we have to be politically correct. So geriatric and elderly are not quite the same. All right, oops, let me go back a slide. So the objectives for this talk are, first, to review the role that aging has on inflammatory bowel disease itself, but also the treatments we use for inflammatory bowel disease, and to highlight factors that we need to consider when it comes to medication selection for the older patients, and really to highlight the modifiable factors that we have to decrease the risks associated with not only the IBD treatments, but IBD itself, and really emphasize that there's a paucity of data focusing on the older patients with IBD. So we need more studies, including evaluating the therapeutic efficacy and safety of our medication arsenal for the older IBD patients, particularly comparative effectiveness studies, which are needed across all IBD areas, but especially in the older patients. So let's discuss the scope of the problem. We do know that older IBD patients have increased healthcare utilization. They oftentimes go to the emergency room, and once they're in the emergency room and they're admitted to the hospital, their lengths of stay may be longer. Once they're in the hospital, their risk of in-hospital morbidity and mortality is higher. The risk of thromboembolic events are higher. The risk of getting C. difficile is higher. Risk of frailty and malnutrition are higher. So the key is we need to keep them out of the hospital. But why do they end up in the hospital? In general, we have a lower threshold to admit older patients to the hospital, and it may be because they have a decreased ability to handle the burden of disease activity. They also may have an increased likelihood to seek medical attention with a change in symptoms compared to younger persons. There's also the challenges sometimes in establishing the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease in an older person because we oftentimes forget that up to 10 to 15% of new diagnoses occur in persons over the age of 60. There's adverse events of therapy, and there's the impact of inflammatory bowel disease on pre-existing conditions, but also vice versa. And this is one I want to highlight in particular is under-treatment of the appropriate disease activity. So what can we do? And these are themes you're going to hear over and over again in my talk. Early control of disease activity is essential to decrease the risk of morbidity that's associated with increased disease activity, uh, disease burden. And how can we do this? We need to recognize early on and correct modifiable variables, which we'll discuss during this talk. And we need to really optimize care in the outpatient setting with appropriate medication use. Now, these strategies may sound very obvious because we utilize them in our younger patients, in our pediatric patients, but we certainly need to emphasize those even more for our older patients. So let's discuss the role of age-associated physiologic changes on chronic diseases, but also on treatment. We know that with aging, there's a loss of physical reserve, there's declines in functional status, which is the ability for persons to take care of themselves independently. There's also an increased susceptibility to falls. And a lot of this relates to sarcopenia that's associated with aging. And with these decreases in lean body mass or decreases in muscle mass, independent of inflammatory bowel disease, there's an increased risk for infection, hospitalization, and postoperative complications. There's also decreased anal sphincter function that's associated with aging and a decreased ability to manage symptoms of urgency, frequency, and nighttime bowel movements. So as we're thinking about our therapeutic armamentarium, there may be more of a limited role of topical therapies with some of the older persons. And we also have to consider the role of sleep deprivation. It's well known that sleep deprivation actually accelerates the aging process. It actually worsens cognition and it increases the risk for delirium, particularly if our older patients 
limitations are already on agents such as corticosteroids. With aging, there's cognitive impairments and hearing and visual compromise, which can lead to medication errors, particularly if there's quite a bit of medication complexity, either with too much pill burden or challenges in terms of administrating the medications. And finally, with older patients, there's an increased risk for cancer, which makes us think twice when we're discussing risks of medication, but also risks of long-standing disease itself. We also have to think about the pharmacokinetic changes that occur with aging and how this increases the risks of treatment. With aging, there's increases in body fat. There's decreases in lean body mass, the sarcopenia that we had mentioned earlier. But there's also decreased hepatic blood flow, decreased renal blood flow, which translates to decreases in glomerular filtration rates. So this may actually impact our dosing strategies or the binding uh, ability for some of our IBD treatment regimens. But we don't adjust dosing based on aging. It's a one-size-fits-all based on our experiences with other medications. And remembering, it a lot of the randomized controlled trials, they did not include a significant fraction of older patients. So how does age influence treatment selection? Looking at some of the data, and these themes are repeated across multiple studies. This is data from a study that was done in University of Pittsburgh a number of years ago, but the data still rings true today. What they found is amongst their older IBD patient population, there was a low utilization of steroid-sparing agents, such as immunomodulators and anti-TNFs, and more than a third, approximately a third of their older patients were maintained on chronic steroids. Only about a quarter were actually receiving calcium plus vitamin D, and there was rarely a documentation of steroid-sparing strategies. You can say that's a single-center study. Maybe that's not true elsewhere. Well, earlier this year, a Swedish study on older IBD patients defined as greater than 60, they followed them for five years post-diagnosis, and they found that 60% of these older patients were exposed to steroids during this five-year follow-up period, which was higher than the younger patient populations. Only 2% of UC and only 6% of Crohn's disease patients were prescribed biologics. Only 17% of UC and only 33% of Crohn's disease patients were prescribed immunomodulators. In the EpiMAD registry in France, corticosteroids and 5-ASAs were prescribed more frequently than immunomodulators and biologics for late-onset IBD. And after five years, almost 45% of their late-onset Crohn's disease patients were still on steroids. And the 5-ASA prescriptions held true even for older-onset Crohn's disease. And we've discussed during this conference whether or not there's even a role of 5-ASAs for Crohn's disease. So the theme is we have to remember, just like for younger persons, corticosteroids are not maintenance therapies. And in fact, the complications associated with steroids only gets greater with increased age, with not only bone loss, hyperglycemia, but medication interactions, because polypharmacy is higher, and an increased risk of mortality. So what are we supposed to do? There's not a lot of data within IBD. So we have to look at other patient populations who may have similar experiences, such as the older rheumatoid arthritis population. So in the RA literature, steroids are actually considered potentially inappropriate medications. And there is this stop-start toolkit. Stop meaning a screening tool for older persons' prescriptions. Start meaning a screening tool to alert doctors towards the right treatment. So a stop marker is steroid use greater than three months 
to treat rheumatoid arthritis. When they see that, they're supposed to start a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug as a steroid-sparing agent for moderate to severe RA. If those principles are in place for older persons with RA, we should be using those for our older patients with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. So we can say, okay, we don't want to use systemic corticosteroids, but what about budesonide? There's no long-term efficacy or safety data for Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. It is used for microscopic colitis or collagenous colitis for induction, potentially for maintenance. And so we can ask ourselves, well, given this, is there potentially a role for those patients who have persistent symptomatic mild Crohn's disease? What about those patients with mild endoscopic ulcerative colitis who have a 5-ASA hypersensitivity? But we have to keep in mind that cost matters. So these agents may not always be covered by Medicare. And adverse events, even to budesonide, can occur to up to 10% of patients treated. And if you can't taper off budesonide, you may need to consider something else. But we know that there's low rates of biologic prescribing among older patients. And these underutilization of these standard therapies is, may actually be re uh, resulting in poorer outcomes once they're actually prescribed. It may be driven by the fact that we have limited safety and e efficacy data, not only for biologics, but some of these newer mechanisms of actions, especially for older IBD patients. Obviously, there's concerns about malignancy risk associated with biologics and immunomodulators. But are the strategy, according to the data and also many clinical practices, is being driven by, uh, to make medication selection more out of concern about adverse effects rather than efficacy as well as the reliance on chronic steroids um, as the maintenance treatment. So, one of, so then we have to pause and ask, what are our goals of treatment when it comes to the older IBD patients? Is it truly deep remission with mucosal healing and histologic remission? Or is it predominantly clinical remission to improve their quality of life, but importantly to reverse as well as prevent frailty and reduce disability? And we have to remember that there's multiple risk factors that are associated with adverse effects of IBD therapy, malnutrition, comorbidities, hospitalizations, steroids, narcotics, as well as increasing age. But out of all six of those, five of those are modifiable. So we need to really focus on modifying those five risk factors since we can't do anything about increased age. If we were to look at some of the limited data on anti-TNF use as an example for older patients, this is a study that was published um, in 2015. It was a small study, but basically they shared a common theme, that when you compare anti-TNF use amongst older persons compared to less older persons, the response rates aren't as high during the induction phases. But once they do respond, the likelihood they'll continue to respond is similar. Now we have to ask ourselves, okay, they don't work as well as in the younger patient population, but is that the right comparator? Do they work better than not being treated with anti-TNFs at all? Do they work better than being on mesalamines for moderate to severe colitis? Do they work better than being on immunomodulators for moderate to severe disease? And are the risks similar across different treatment classes for older patients, not necessarily compared to younger, because increasing age will always be a risk factor for adverse events. So again, we have to borrow from rheumatology. In the rheumatology literature, again, there's not a lot, but there is one study that showed for persons treated with biologics over the age of 60, there was actually no difference in anti-TNF retention at three years compared to younger patients. 
And in this study specifically looking at risks of infection, across the various categories, non-biologic DMARDs, steroids, and anti-TNFs, yes, anti-TNFs were associated with increased risk for serious infection, but the risk of serious infection was lower than when compared to azathioprine, lower high-dose methotrexate, and lower high-dose corticosteroids. So when we're positioning agents for our older IBD patients with moderate to severe disease, we have to consider a slide like this rather than comparisons to younger patients. So then we have to ask ourselves, looking at the data, do anti-TNFs really increase the risk of infection amongst the older IBD patients? And looking at all these studies, the percentages compared to younger are certainly higher. But then we have to look at the types of severe infections that were, were reported. 10 out of the 30 infections were pneumonias, which you can argue are vaccine preventable. And 6 out of the 30 infections were abscesses, which you could argue may be related to delays in starting the appropriate treatment, particularly for Crohn's disease. In a, in another study, looking at the adverse events, the primary reason was primary non-response. Maybe that's related to delays in therapy rather than simple non-efficacy. But also, there were IBD-associated hospitalizations, serious infections, and surgeries. So again, asking ourselves if we had potentially given the right agent for the disease severity earlier in the disease course, could we have changed these percentages? Well, what about vetalizumab? There's limited data. So a pooled analysis of the Gemini studies, keeping in mind they defined older as being greater than 55 years, so depending on how old you are in the audience, you may or may not be offended by that term. But the week six response rates was only about 38%, and the week 52 remission rates was about 42%. So you have to ask yourselves, can this data with a 55-plus population be translated to a 75-plus population? Older IBD patients um, treated with vetalizumab had lower clinical response rates compared to younger patients. And the bottom table um, it looks at some of the data that I would believe was published from the group in Florida. 29 patients over the age of 60, and they had a clinical remission rate at week 14 of about 38%, and a clinical remission rate at week 52 of around 41%. Adverse event rates were relatively low, only about 14%, but keeping in mind this was only 29 patients. Now we have more MOAs available. What about ustekinumab and tofacitinib? Unfortunately, there's not really any data for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So let's borrow from other disciplines. In psoriasis, in a case series of 24 patients aged over 65 treated with ustekinumab, there were really no serious infections at one year. In RA, over 1,000 patients over the age of 65 were treated with tofacitinib during their five, five phase three trials and two long-term extensions. And there was a numerically higher rate of serious infections and discontinuations, but similar efficacy compared to younger patients. But when you looked at the most common adverse events, pneumonias, potentially vaccine-preventable, um, zoster, if anyone can get it, potentially vaccine-preventable, UTIs and cellulitis, which may or may not be attributed to steroid use. Another smaller study looked at 17 RA patients with a mean age of 79 treated with tofacitinib, and they found significant decreases in disease activity indices, but there were a number of adverse events, including zoster, infarctions, fever, and redness. 
So what are some of the risk factors for infection amongst our IBD patients? How can we decrease the risk of serious infections for our older patients since the common theme with a lot of our non-steroid-based uh, steroid-sparing therapies are associated with an increased risk for infection? So looking at these table of disease-related, medication-related, and age-related risk factors, we do see that a lot of these are modifiable. Malnutrition, TPN, keeping them out of the hospital, getting them off steroids, getting them off narcotics, avoiding combination therapy, and optimizing comorbidities. So what should we do? We need to vaccinate. We need to work with multidisciplinary care teams, but now it's expanded. It really involves their internists, potentially their cardiologists, potentially their endocrinologists managing their diabetes. We need to optimize not only their nutritional status, as we heard many tips from our earlier excellent presentation, but also functional status. We need to avoid narcotics. You'd be surprised to know that narcotics are amongst the top 10 most commonly prescribed medications to older persons. We need to avoid steroids and combination immunosuppressions and importantly, keep them out of the hospital. So when we're talking about how we tailor immunosuppressive decision-making for the older IBD patient, it's not about numeric age, it's about their functional age. Are they fit or are they frail? If they're fit and they have minimal or well-controlled comorbidities, if they have an independent functional status, if they're not malnourished, if their hemoglobin is normal and they have no dementia, you use the same strategies as you would for your younger patient population. Now, if they have some comorbidities that are moderately controlled, again, multidisciplinary care is important, a partially dependent functional status, mild malnutrition, mild to moderate anemia, or some polypharmacy, you want to use appropriate immunosuppression with caution and really have a finite endpoint to identify response and do something different, but also continue to optimize these other variables. And if they have a lot of poorly controlled comorbidities and their dependent functional status, severe malnutrition, you may need to really discuss what your options are aside from excessive immunosuppression. So when we, we want to optimize non-IBD variables, for an, importantly for a Medicare age population, you need to choose agents that are covered. Choosing an agent that's not covered, that you know Medicare will never cover, is not going to help. It's only going to delay care. You want to correct vitamin and mineral uh, deficiencies. You want to give appropriate nutrition counseling. But remembering that nutrition care services are not covered through Medicare unless you have kidney disease, diabetes, or recent kidney transplant. We want to correct anemia. We want to utilize our other ancillary services like PT and OT, psychosocial assessments, and to reduce polypharmacy. So I want to emphasize, as was mentioned earlier, we really need to correct anemia, particularly in the older patients. And it's not the absolute value, it's actually the declines in hemoglobin over time frame that have worse outcomes, including a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease, worsened physical performance, longer hospitalizations, and increased frailty. You want to correct a hemoglobin deficiency if, with IV iron if possible if their hemoglobin is less than 12 or 13, but in the inpatient setting, you may even want to consider transfusions to maintain a hemoglobin of 9 to 10. Now, it's important to know a lot of these patients are Medicare age. IV formulations of iron are covered under their medical benefits, and they're better tolerated. So in your slides, you're going to see there's a variety of formulations. You want to choose the one that's most effective, ideally in the fewest doses. 
I want to touch base briefly on topics we don't discuss with our older persons. Physical therapy assessments are important. These are symptoms that are prevalent with aging and IBD. Sarcopenia is associated with increased aging, but sarcopenia is also present in persons with severe inflammatory bowel disease. And there are multiple factors that are associated with muscle atrophy. Malnutrition, anorexia, decreased physical activity, and the upregulation of cytokines that occur with inflammatory bowel disease. And there's multiple benefits associated with physical therapy, including improved muscle function, bone mass, decreased pain. More importantly, Medicare Part B does cover physical therapy services. You just have to code it correctly. The first code has to be your diagnosis code. The second code, deconditioning, frailty, weakness, sarcopenia, and then the physical therapist determines the duration of the type of physical therapy afterwards. Don't forget psychosocial assessments. Depression is not just part of the aging process. The PHQ-9 that's routinely used in multiple offices um, can be performed similarly to geriatric depression scales. And Medicare also does cover counseling services through Part B. So polypharmacy is very common amongst older patients with IBD, and increased risk factors include age, comorbidity stores, steroid use, and immunomodulators. So the way that we can decrease our polypharmacy is to review medication lists, including supplements, over-the-counter meds, remove unnecessary medications, watch for medication interactions, and really try to simplify the medication regimen. So to close up, you have the slides available. There isn't a really a lot of guidance to help us position a lot of our medical therapies for moderate to severe ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. It's certainly an era, area that needs further investigation. While there's a lot of talk of using vetolizumab as first line for our patients with moderate to severe disease, remember it's fit versus frail. Do they have comorbidities? Do they have polypharmacy? And you choose the best agent related to their functional status, the presence of frailty, as well as their disease activity. So with that, I'll leave this conclusion slide up, and then we can have the rest during our discussion.